0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn
0: at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hi everybody and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. In terms of air safety, the months of January and February have been cruel. 12 years ago this month, it was US Air Flight 1549, the miracle on the Hudson ditching, and yet everyone survived. And then, less than a month later, there was Continental Connection Flight 3409. All on board died. So what really happened? How did everyone survive on one flight and everyone die on the other? My extended conversation with Jeffrey Skiles, Captain Sully Sullenberger's co-pilot on 1549, and then with Scott Maurer, whose daughter was one of the 62 who died on 3407. It's a remarkable story of how one grieving parent pulled together 150 other family members of those who died that night, and then working with Captain Skiles made a real difference in air safety. It's an important story to remember today, especially with the lessons that must be learned and, even more important, applied. First, my conversation with Jeff Skiles. I've been covering the aviation business and the aviation industry in terms of safety for more than 40 years. Uh, And uh, this goes back to my days at Newsweek. And we have a number of anniversaries coming up. Uh, Most of, of these anniversaries are really interesting lessons in how we learn our lessons first and then how we apply them. And I'm joined today by someone I've known for quite some time. Uh, we met through unusual circumstances, which, which I think is uh, not surprising. Most airline accidents are unusual circumstances, that's a good thing. But when they do happen, we need to find out why, that's where the National Transportation Safety Board comes in, and then once they investigate, that's when the real work starts. The real work starts in trying to figure out the probable cause, And then the real challenge, which has been in existence since the FAA has been in existence, and that is once you know the problem and then once you know the solution and that solution can be implemented, what stops you from implementing that solution and what agency interests are there in terms of the definition of what the FAA is supposed to do? They are a, a regulatory agency. The NTSB, by the way, is not. And they're supposed to basically enforce and enact safety. Uh, my guest, pilot, uh, hero, and safety advocate, Jeff Skiles. Hi Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Peter. It's nice to be with you. Now, just for putting this in some perspective, you and I first met because of the miracle on the Hudson, uh, the U.S. air flight that made that amazing uh, ditching in the Hudson in January of, of, uh, of 09. And, uh, uh, of course, the pilot was Captain Sully Sullenberger. You were the co-pilot. Uh, that story doesn't need to be uh, told anymore. We know it. It's an amazing story, an amazing story of uh, everybody combining, all the gods, the planets, the expertise in the cockpit, um, the, the people on the, on the ground and the water, the, 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 uh, the, the fast rescue operation, uh, all of those things combining to, to, uh, to tell an amazing story. But you and I also met because of something else, and and that was a flight that you had nothing to do with. In fact, it was a different airline. It was a Continental Continental Connection flight, part of Continental Airlines, flight 3407, from Newark to Buffalo, and that, in uh, in 2009, was uh, was another story altogether. Uh, that nobody survived that, and and that was an amazing story because when the NTSB got involved and started looking at all the possible reasons why that crash happened, the story then became quite interesting, didn't it?
2: Yeah, very much so. I think that uh, the way uh, our incident was viewed was as what happens when everything can go right. And certainly that incident uh, reflected uh, a tragedy when everything could go wrong. And the question is, what do you do about it? And that's uh, what I think it's always a question that's faced after accidents like this. Uh, in this case, the uh, the families of the uh, the victims of that accident uh, were very forward thinking and uh, wanted to make sure that the loss of their loved ones meant something, uh, and that there would be positive change uh, due to the uh, due to what was reflected in the investigation.
0: Well, let's go back for a second, Jeff, and set the scene. Uh, the, the plane left Newark in the early evening hours, um, heading for Buffalo, about, what, about a 48-minute flight normally, uh, if, if not less. It was, it was called Continental Connection. And let me just paint the picture for you, uh, for those of you listening. Uh, the paint on that plane was Continental logo. Uh, the in-flight magazine was a Continental Airlines flight magazine. The people who held tickets on that plane, it said Continental Airlines. Uh, if they were members of their frequent flyer program, they got Continental frequent flyer miles. And yet, it wasn't operated by Continental. It was operated by then Colgan Air. And therein lies an interesting story about airline regulations in terms of safety, airline requirements in terms of, of skills needed by the cockpit crew and training needed by the cockpit crew and number of hours needed in the left seat as well as the right seat. And therein lies the real problem, isn't it?
2: Yeah, very much so. All of those things are uh, are at issue in this incident uh, because a regional carrier uh, is operating on a threadbare financial uh, situation. Uh, they bid for the routes, and the lowest bidder uh, gets the from the major airlines. And, and as you stated, you, as the customer, have no idea what you're flying on. That's one of the, or two of the several things that have changed because of this incident. Now, when you book the flight, it has to say that it's on uh, a regional carrier. In this case, it was continental uh, connection, as you say. It's only when it crashes and kills people that it became Colgan Air.
0: And going back to this, you know, because it was a commuter carrier, they were operating on on, uh, sort of more flexible, less rigid restrictions, even though they were a commercial carrier, uh, than they would have been had they been a Continental Airlines mainline service. And therein lies one of the bigger problems. Uh, I remember uh, reading with some horror uh, when we started to dissect all the elements that went into this accident that the pilot of the plane – not only was not properly trained in certain areas, he had failed some tests and was still allowed to fly. The co-pilot, a young woman who lived in the state of Washington, was being paid the salary of a Walmart greeter. I think maybe $17,000 a year, if I remember. And, And it was such a low salary that she couldn't afford to live in the base where she was assigned, which was Newark. So she was commuting from the state of Washington to Newark and because of the timing of the flight, and because she didn't have enough money to live anywhere, uh, she was living at home with her mom. When she came in for that flight, she was literally deadheading in the cockpit of a FedEx plane, landing, and then, and then, with no rest, going to take that flight.
2: Yeah, that that that's that's all true, and and in fact, the the, uh, the families of the uh, the victims of the accident consider the pilots to be victims of the accident as well. Which you might think is unusual, but they realized that they were victims of the system, the system that, that didn't allow them to, uh, to, for instance, make enough money to afford to live where they had to be based, uh, a system that, that uh, didn't allow them to have the training that uh, was necessary. And, and, and unfortunately, in the case of the captain, as you said, he did. He did fail several check rides in the past, uh, and that was something that at that time was invisible because there was no requirement of an airline to check into the past of the employees that they hire, uh, and frankly, no ability for them to compel former employers to tell them um, the, situ- the, the the troubles that they may have had.
0: Now, this incident happened on February twelfth, two 2009, and during the flight, uh, it was a cold night. Uh, ice accumulated on both the windshield and the wings, At about the time, around 10 o'clock at night, that plane started its descent into Buffalo. And here's where training comes into play. Because the one thing you don't ever want to have happen, and pilots who know what I'm talking about will understand this, you don't want the stick shaker to start shaking. Uh, The stick shaker is the indication in the cockpit that you're about to go into a stall because you're flying too slow. And that's exactly what started happening. Uh, This turboprop uh, was basically shaking shaking. It pitched, it rolled, it, it jerked violently from side to side, and as any pilot, including Jeff Skiles, will tell you, if you're in the, in, in the midst of, or about to have a stall, the very first thing you've got to do is get the nose down. You've got to increase your airspeed, and this particular pilot did exactly the opposite. Uh, he hadn't been properly trained, he certainly didn't behave well in this case, and he pulled the stick up, and that sealed their fate, because then they went into a total stall, crashed, and everybody died. Yeah, that, that's
2: exactly the situation. He uh, reacted uh, completely inappropriately to what uh, what was occurring. And, of course, that's one of the things that has changed due to legislation. Uh, I uh, I still fly. And just last month, I had to do my nine-month simulator training, and we spent about an hour doing deep stall training, which is something that wasn't required by the FAA before. But now... Uh, whether you're a major airline or a regional carrier, you have to have training in stall recovery.
0: Exactly. And, you know, when we come back, we're going to get much deeper into this because of the amazing efforts of the family members of the victims. In this case, all 49 people on board uh, this flight, uh, were, were uh, 3407, were killed. One person on the ground when the plane fell into a house also died. But that's really where our story begins, not just with the NTSB investigation, but with the remarkable investigation of the, uh, of the families themselves. And now Jeffrey and I are joined by Scott Maurer, whose daughter Lauren was one of those 62 people who died back in February 2009 near Buffalo, New York, on Continental Connection Flight 3407. Jeff, explain to me how you met our other guest joining us now, Scott Maurer, who is the leader of the Continental Flight 3407 Families Group and the father of Lauren Maurer, who who perished in the crash.
2: Well, I think that we are we were both working on the same thing. We we're working trying to change to get legislation passed to compel the FAA to improve their standards on many different issues. Uh, and uh, over that summer, uh, after our two incidents, I can recall here talking to staffers and i'd hear about the buffalo families group and i really didn't know anything about them and i believe it was in september i was uh, testifying uh, before a uh, house aviation sub the house aviation subcommittee and at the end of it uh everybody packs up and they leave and i walked out and there was a, a a thin tall thin gentleman at the back of the room and he waved me over and says jeff can i talk to you for a minute and i said well of course and he, he looks at me and he says my name is scott mauer my my daughter died in continental 3407 and i remember the the shock of it at that moment you know him just introducing himself that way it was like the the bottom had uh, fallen out and, you know, we talked a little bit, we talked more on the phone, and in the months and uh, year and a half after that, uh, we started working together very closely to get this critical legislation passed.
0: You know, what's interesting is that, Scott, you ended up grouping together 150 family members along with your wife uh, to to. Put this family group together i'm reminded in the most recent example of the boeing 737 max crashes in indonesia and in ethiopia there are similar family groups that have formed uh to try to figure out a way to improve safety in the wake of those two terrible disasters what were the obstacles that you faced initially
3: well uh, you know the first obstacle and uh huge challenge, hopefully no one ever has to go through this, is just dealing with accepting the huge loss that each of the family members had. You know, that that was always in our mind and on our mind, et cetera. Then, then as we started probing and looking, et cetera, is how, how do you trust people? Who can you trust? Who can you work with? Uh, you know, we had people coming at us from all different corners of the world, all different corners of the political area, all different corners of, of uh, the business area. And then, you know, also sadly, you know, some attorneys, et cetera. So, you know, while you're dealing with a huge tragedy within your own family, you also have to kind of manage that minefield of who can you work with and who can you trust. And, uh, you know, thankfully, that's, that's one of the bright notes in working with Jeff. He helped, he helped me personally understand uh the network and the the challenges that we're, we were being faced
0: with i'm assuming scott that jeff being a pilot could also walk you through how the plane actually flies what the challenges are for the pilots what went wrong and then what it needed to be fixed because i'm assuming that prior to this terrible crash you had no understanding about that
3: uh, that's absolutely correct i'm not a pilot uh um you know i i'm Manufacturing businessman, uh, so you know, and and no one in our team uh, who was working in Washington to bring about these changes, not not any one of us had that technical expertise. So um, we all talked to hundreds, if not thousands, of pilots, but to to have Jeff and Captain Sullenberger also speak with us and walk us through technically what it takes to fly you know these very sophisticated aircraft
0: was critical. Exactly, and of course we dealt with two issues here that the NTSB finally dealt with, and that is training, requirements in terms of basic levels to be admitted to the left seat or the right seat, and then the secondary issue was, you know, Rest, crew rest, you know, crew rest is something that people just sort of took for granted, you know, and and airlines were measuring crew rest by the time from the time the plane touched down at the at the the jetway till the time you needed to be back uh, on the flight. And that's not realistic because it may have taken you sometimes an hour and a half just to get to the hotel and you had to be back at the airport early to get the flight. You weren't getting eight hours of sleep or 10 hours of sleep. You might have been getting four.
3: And that's exactly what we were hearing as we were interviewing and talking to pilots now you know Jeff obviously can enlighten everyone uh from his own personal experience um, you know what uh, what we're referring to and what what our endeavor uh, peter was was mostly focused on was getting the, the the conditions and what was going on at the regional airlines up to the level of uh, performance at the major airlines, and you know that's the, the one true level of safety was top of mind for our focus. And so the regional airline guys, they were lucky to get four or five hours of sleep, as you pointed exactly.
0: out. Exactly, Scott. I think hold on, hold on to that thought for Scott. Scott, hold on to that thought for a second.
3: They were, you know, they were being treated a whole lot differently. At the major levels, but Jeff, you can obviously make comment there.
0: Scott, when we just left off, you were talking about the Regional Airline Association because I'm sure you came up with some in- came up against some intense lobbying.
3: That is true. Uh, you know the uh, the Regional Airline Association certainly. You know, they would reach out to us and say, listen, you need to need to listen to the professionals and so on and so forth. And back to my comments earlier, uh, you know, who do you trust? And and obviously, given that the regional airlines had had multiple crashes in the 10 years leading up to our crash, you know, we just didn't feel very comfortable listening uh, attentively to, to what they had to say. And that's, again, where, where uh, you know, First Officer Skiles was able to, to point out, look, this is the right way to do things. This is how it should be done. And unfortunately, this is what's happening at the regional airline level.
0: And, you know, when you take a look at the history of of the regional airlines, they had a higher incidence of of, uh, safety issues and crashes. Much of that may have happened to do with with the training of the pilots themselves. I will say that one of the good things that came out of all of your efforts is that before Flight 3407, first officers needed a minimum of just 250 hours of in-flight experience to operate that right seat. Now pilots and first officers must have at least 1,500 hours of flight time training to fly for regional airlines. That's a big step.
3: That's correct. As you listen to our story, when we say we wanted one true level of safety, our key statement was always, let's let's get the best possible pilots we can, put them in the cockpit, and then set them up for success. And when you look at the seven bullet point areas that were the focus of the legislation that we helped get passed, you'll notice that uh, one of the big ones, which you, you you're talking about, is the crew member screening qualification area.
0: And Jeffrey, let me ask you this from a pilot's perspective, you know, what lessons were learned for you and for the, for the flying public after your experience on 1549 that can still be applied today?
2: Well, I think what was, what was learned, obviously, and by the public, you know, as they witnessed was what two uh, experienced, trained airline pilots uh, could do when put into a, uh, a difficult situation. Um, we were uh, well-rested on that trip. Uh, obviously, we're very experienced. We both have about 20,000 flying hours uh, of experience. Uh, I do would like to say that um, when you mentioned earlier about increasing the number of hours to be uh, an airline pilot, that's only part of that issue. Really, it's to to hold an airline transport pilot's license, you have to have the requisite experience, which is more than just the 1,500 hours. Uh, It's 500 hours cross-country, 100 hours of nighttime. Uh, But you also have to pass a very, rigorous uh, test, both written test and a uh, flight test to become an airline transport pilot. That's an actual license that the FAA uh, issues. And believe it or not, at that time, back then, 10 years ago, an airline transport pilot didn't have to hold an airline transport pilot's license. And that was changed with the legislation and what the FAA did in the subsequent years after these incidents.
0: And that's key. That's very, very important. And of course, the argument would be uh, if we have to to do all this and we have to spend more money for the pilots. It's going to cost more money to operate our airline. We're going to have to charge more for tickets. But you know what? So be it, right? Oh, that's, and, and that's very true. And the
2: major airlines were doing that. They have pioneered safety management systems. How we operate in the cockpit is completely different today than it was when I first started uh, back in the mid-1980s. But those lessons had not been passed on to the regional carriers because, as you point out, there is a cost to safety. And they were operating on such thin margins uh, that that cost for them was unacceptable. And it required a mandate by the FAA that they basically had to adopt uh, to change that dynamic.
3: Jeff, you might point out that, that you and your team did a, an analysis on that. And I believe the cost to get to get pilots pay and experience level and the cost of the, the business was gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of a dollar or two more per ticket just to get a uh, Captain Sullenberger and Jeff Skiles level of pilot versus the two pilots that we had.
2: That's that's true. Uh, I believe it was three dollars a ticket. Um, but but yeah, the cost to to not not just to uh, pay people but to provide the training systems uh, and that we enjoy at the major airline level was not that significant considered, uh, compared to the, the vast benefit.
0: I'm talking with pilot Jeff Skiles, of course, one of the two hero pilots. I know you don't like the word hero, Jeff, but I'm using it anyway. Of U.S. Air Flight 1549 and uh, Scott Maurer, who led the family group of about 150 family members of those who died in that crash to try to get new legislation passed to make sure that that same accident wasn't repeated. I guess I have to ask you, Jeff, in the wake of the, of the recent uh, $2.5 billion criminal fine paid by Boeing on the 737 MAX uh, incidents, uh, I find it interesting that the family groups of both the Indonesian crash and the Ethiopian crash of those planes were still not satisfied that the plane should go back in the air. And I guess I have to divide it in two parts my question to you. Part number one, I would think at this point and please feel free to disagree with me, that they have fixed those problems on the 737 MAX with the the flight management software and pilot training not only how to operate the system but how to override it. But the real question I think that remains is the safety culture itself at the FAA and the relationship between a regulatory agency and the very entities they're supposed to regulate to start with your first
2: question uh, certainly there were failures across the board uh, both at Boeing and in the certification branch of the FAA with this with this incident this was something that should not have happened Um, a lot of it was due to actually the outsourcing of engineering by Boeing itself to companies that weren't aviation oriented and don't understand the challenges of aviation um now I, I have, I've never flown a Max. Uh, I used to fly 737s years ago, much earlier models that didn't suffer from this problem. Uh, from what I understand of the uh, solution, uh, it's a it's a it's a strong solution. This will not happen. This particular incident will not happen again. And I've talked to uh, people that I know who uh, do fly the Max, and they also feel that the changes that we made in the software has solved the problem. But I certainly understand how the, the family groups feel about this. And, and, and frankly, they do have a point in that this sh- never should have been allowed to happen in the first place. I, I guess I think that the FAA is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an organization. They're, they're obviously trying to do good. They're trying to do their jobs as well as they can. But like most agencies, you know, to some extent, they're whipsawed between uh, new administrations coming through every four and eight years. They've got a leader who's either fresh on the job or about ready to go out the door in many cases because the uh, leaders of agencies don't last that long in the grand scheme of things. And I think for them to to, uh, internally develop the changes, the the reforms that need to be made might be difficult. Uh, I think that they really need to be looked at from the outside and uh, perhaps, you know, with congressional legislation to at least mandate that the process move forward.
0: You know, one of the things that always amazed me, and this doesn't just apply to Boeing, it goes back to the beginning of the FAA, whether it was Lockheed or McDonnell Douglas or even Convair, was this, the idea of the designated inspector that was someone who was actually on the payroll of the manufacturer and who was in charge of basically certifying that the plane was was, was airworthy. Uh, I, I will tell you this, Jeff, if I built a chair and you wanted to sit in it and I told you it was safe, trust me, don't sit in it. <laughs> I, it's not something I do very well. Uh, and, I, 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 and the interesting thing about this, it's, it's legislation that's just come out of Congress that the president did sign, and that is Boeing is no longer going to be allowed to certify their own planes as airworthy. It's going to have to be done by the FAA.
2: And, and that, that's, that's, certainly, that's certainly valuable uh, legislation, and uh, I, I'm, hoping that, I'm certain that the FAA will take it to heart.
0: We're talking with Jeff Skiles and Scott Maurer. Scott, it's now been almost 12 years uh, since the actual incident near Buffalo, something that you might get through but never get over. What's been the overriding lesson for you and the other family members on this story?
3: Well, you you certainly don't ever take anything for granted. Uh, I mean, live life to the fullest. And, uh, you know, thankfully, our daughter did. And if if you talk to many of the family members, most of their family members have as well. So, uh, you know, don't ever take anything for granted. As for lessons learned for for all of us as individuals is, you know, you need to you need to understand uh, how things do work. I mean, as a layperson, I certainly didn't understand the complexities of the airline industry, et cetera. And, you know, buying a, a plane ticket, you should be thinking about your vacation. You should be thinking about seeing your friends and loved ones and so on and so forth. But you also have to take a little time to, to make sure that things are being done the right way.
0: Well, all I can say is, uh, having covered this story from day one, my hat is off to both you, Scott, the other family members, and to Jeff for sticking to it for becoming dedicated advocates in a, in a world that, at least in your case, Scott, was a bra- a brave new world for you. And without your efforts, I can tell you, I don't think the uh, you would have gotten that legislation. We'd gotten, you would have gotten near it. And you've made the skies safer for all of us. And I really want to say thank you for doing that uh, as we near that anniversary. Jeffrey, always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I'll see you back up in the air, as they say. Well, thank you, Peter. My thanks to Jeffrey Skiles, to Scott Maurer, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel and for the answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for breaking travel news, and there sure is a lot of it these days, be sure to log on to PeterGreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wonderycom survey. Hi, this is Jill
3: Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch Podcast